Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today we are joined by Jesse Granger, who does fantastic work for The Athletic covering the Vegas Golden Knights and obviously uh, the Cup champs. So that must have been a, a pretty cool ride. Uh, so thanks so much, Jesse, for coming on and uh, taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a long summer, but an exciting summer. So it's been a lot of fun. Do you, do you like that uh, you had to work an extra couple months more so than uh, than usual? Yeah, I mean, there's trade-offs to it. Obviously, it it takes up most of your your I mean, half your off season. But it was in the when when you're in it, you don't mind it at all. I mean, it was it was a really fun run. I hadn't really been on a run like that since the first year. Um, obviously, the Golden Knights have been to quite a few uh, conference final runs, but uh, they were like pandemic years, so yeah. it was like in the bubble. I wasn't there because we couldn't get across the border to to do that. And then the following year, it was still like limited access with the pandemic. So we were just still doing things on Zoom. So basically, it had been six years <laughs> since I had been on a playoff run like that with the traveling back and forth from the city. So um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Well, what was it like to to cover that team and then also just be in the building for for when the Stanley Cup is is given out? Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, this this business, like to me, the when when this job is 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 at its most fun, its most exhilarating is when you're covering meaningful games. And obviously, on a cup run, every single one of those games is meaningful. You're going to the rink every night with like the excitement of like I think I think during the NHL regular season, there are so many games that you find yourself like, okay, I don't want to overreact to this or this. So you find yourself like trying to temper like, okay, that was a great play or, or this player had a great game. But at the same time, does it really mean that much? It's an 82 game season. But then once you get to the playoffs, it's you can't overreact to anything. Like everything <laughs> is, is the season is on the line. So I, I love that part of the playoffs where every play that's made is the biggest play of that player's life. And you can really just like, overreact to everything it's great um so that part of it was fun obviously them winning the cup was was really cool um reporters that cover that get to do something that i'd never done before and that a lot of people have never done and that's go down on the ice um, while the cup is being passed around and all the families are down there and it was really cool um obviously getting to congratulate the players and and talk to them and and get their thoughts on it was fun but I really enjoyed talking to the family members. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of them came up to me and and just started chatting. And you get to you get to know a lot of them that you that you haven't seen over the last six years. And some of them follow you on Twitter. You're there. You, you're kind of the conduit between them and their son, or their or their <laughs> uncle, or their or their niece, or sorry, their nephew, whatever it is. Like they, there are so many people. that, oh, my girlfriend's dating this player. So there's <laughs> or, sorry, my sister. My sister is dating this player. Yeah, there are yeah. so many different people connected to these players that follow you on twitter um and 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 i have no idea who they are and and they come up to you and they're like it's been so cool following zach Whitecloud the last three seasons through you so um that part of it was really cool and just getting to meet them and, and obviously you'll never find a group of people in a better mood than yeah. the players and their families after they just won the stanley cup so it was it was really cool um i i, I enjoyed the entire process and the end was and obviously the parade was, was, yeah. <laughs> was a lot of fun to cover too <laughs> yeah no and then how was that like the whole like what did it mean to you to to cover a team that that won, won the cup like is that something when you because i always think for reporters when you're a beat writer how does that impact do you feel like you're maybe a bit biased in terms of them wanting to for in this case the golden knights winning the cup like do you feel like you're like almost a fan in a sense or is it more i just want to you know cover a good team and then cover the meaningful games you know what i i don't i can only speak for myself 
I never find it hard to to not like be a fan of the team. Like it, like I, for me, I always find myself rooting for the storylines. Um, so like I may have us like here's a great example. Um, before the Cup final, so they had a, a like a week off um, because they had finished the conference final so quickly. Um, they had quite a bit of time off, so I I got to sit down with Aiden Hill and I worked on this really big story on how Aiden Hill um, found yoga during the pandemic. And he he discovered this app and it just changed the way he like operates and he does yoga before every, on every game day and all this stuff. And so I've got this story, but instead of running it right then um, I'm, I had a conversation with my editors and we're all kind of planning what we're going to do for the cup final. And I told him, look, I've got this story on Aiden Hill and how he changed to yoga and how his flexibility improved. If I could just get a, big acrobatic save out of Aiden Hill <laughs> at some point in the cup final, I'll have this story and I can just boom, run it right yeah. there. So I I'm so from that point on, I'm now rooting for Aiden Hill to make this big save. I don't care if they win. I don't care. I just need him to make this big save in a big moment. That way my story can run. So selfishly as a writer, you, you, I often find myself rooting for <laughs> the narrative that I already have this great story. Just give me a reason to, to, to put it out there. And then obviously Aiden Hill makes that paddle save in game one. I did not have to wait long for, for <laughs> that story to run. And I just, it was, it was perfect. I had that story ready. It ran right after like that night. Um, and, and I had something that like everyone was writing about the paddle save, right? Like that was the big moment. Everyone's writing about it that night, but I already had something that, that other people didn't have. So I was able to differentiate my coverage. So yeah, it's a long way of answering. Um, I feel like I I mostly am rooting for selfishly to make my job. If yeah. if I've got a storyline set up, please let this happen so that I can just run this story and don't have to come up with something brand new on the fly. Um, that's pretty much <laughs> how my rooting interest lies in these games. With, with that, because I find that so interesting that you have a story almost in place and you think oh, so far ahead to Aiden Hill making this big save or or whoever it may be, of course. What is your writing process? Like, is that something you do a lot during the regular season? Like, how do you approach your writing? Is it a lot of future based for kind of feature stories? Like, how how do you map it out? Because it seems as though you have definitely have uh, plans for for some stories. Yeah, I do. I, I like doing that. I like just talking to the guys and finding something unique and finding something cool and then kind of waiting for the moment to write that. Because I think a lot of times you the moment almost means more to in terms of like the success of the story, how many people subscribe, how many people read it. If it can, it can make a huge difference. The same story that's written just as well can perform very differently. If you just run it on a a random Friday night, or if you run it after that guy scores a hat trick. Um, So yes, I I do a lot of um, pre-reporting and, and kind of thing. And I'll, and I'll kind of have things in my notebook that I'll, I'll just talk to guys. I like to go into the locker room and and talk to guys like off the record, just talk to them. And I'm lucky enough at the athletic, I'm not having to write, like if you're at a newspaper that's expecting a story every single day, you don't really have the the luxury of doing that Um, at the athletic. I'm, I have a little bit of a lighter load. I'm able to go in there every day and just kind of talk to guys and, and they'll say something interesting. They'll tell me something that they, that they started doing or just interesting little tidbits. I'll, I'll put that away in the mental notebook. Okay. I have something on this player. That's interesting. Let me see if I can. And then I'll go in there and ask them about it and get some quotes, prepare that story. And then when they do whatever it is, um, I've got something big that I, that happens a lot more in the playoffs. Okay. Um, during regular season, not as much because there aren't big as big of moments in the regular season that you're like banking on. But 
um, throughout this cup run, I was doing a lot of that. Um, obviously the, the Hill one that I talked about, I had, I had a story on white cloud and Hague mm -hmm. and how they had pretty much grown up in pro hockey together. Um, and I was waiting and then white cloud scores the game winner, um, in the cup final. So I, I ran that story then. And then I had the story on Jack Eichel that I had talked mm -hmm. to his father and his like juniors coach and all these people. I worked on that story for a long time and I basically needed them to win the Stanley cup for that story to run. So that's another one where it's like, I'm not like rooting for the golden Knights, but I do have this awesome story that if they win the cup, I get to just plug in and run the next morning. So that made my life a lot easier when they won game five and I didn't have to fly back to Florida and I was just able to run that Eichel story. And that was one of my favorite stories that I was able to write all, all postseason. So yes, it happens a lot in the playoffs where I plan stuff and I, and I kind of am just waiting for the moment. Um, but I do a lot of collecting and and putting away and and just yeah. waiting for for stories to kind of happen um, during the regular season. And how do you manage those relationships? Like you mentioned, going into the locker room, I'm sure that's been much easier since the you know the COVID uh, shutdown uh, ended, kind of especially in, in the states. But how do you manage those relationships? And then let's say you write a you know a, a piece on their seven game losing streak and Jack Eichel's not playing well, but then you want to have a story on Jack Eichel. Like, how do you manage those relationships with players and management, but also get access to to talk to these players and, and write stories about them? Yeah, um, like you mentioned, the access helps a lot. I think that um, during the pandemic and and directly after, when we were just talking to him on Zoom. I realized how much harder it is to do this job um, because your only contact with these players is one question on zoom. You, and I don't get to like have a conversation with them. It's just one question. I get to raise my hand. They give me one question. And because I only have one question, I can't ask a bunch of other stuff. I've got to just ask the most important question. And a lot of times it's something critical. So these guys don't ever see me. The only contact they ever have with me for a year is me asking them tough questions. They're probably fed up with me. Like I would be fed up with me if I was them. So whereas, whereas now we're back to normal, we get to go in the locker room. I can go in there and I can talk to, we'll just use white cloud as an example. I can go into there and, and white clouds, a golfer, just like me. We both love okay. golf. Any, cool. any moment we have away from our jobs, we're golfing. So I'm constantly going in there and like every day I'm like, Hey, so what course did you play this week? Oh, he tells me what course he played. Oh, nice. How'd you play? Oh, I'm hitting my long irons. Good. Blah, blah, blah. We it's you're a human. You're like, you have human conversations. And then when I, when, when white cloud makes the turnover that loses the game, I can write a critical piece about how he screwed this up and they lost. And he understands that that's my job to do. And he understands that I don't dislike him as a person. We're yeah. going to talk about golf when I go in there next week. He just knows that his job is to score goals and, and be good at hockey. My job is to write what happens out there. And sometimes when they mess up, I'm going to have to write it. So I think it makes it a lot easier when you're having regular contact with them and you're talking to them. And it also the other thing is like a lot of times I'll go into the room after the game and not with a bunch of cameras and microphones in their face. I'll just ask them, like, what happened on this goal? Like, who's like. And, and they can explain to me, oh, it was this assignment, this assignment, because it's not always in hockey. It's not always obvious whose fault it yeah. was. Like sometimes a guy will be to blame on TV, but the reason he was he was put in a horrible spot by someone else making a mistake. And, and then everyone's roasting that guy. and It actually wasn't his fault. So I think going in the room and being able to have conversations with them and not just ask one word questions that are on TV that everyone has to, because they're not going to want to, they're not going to explain to a bunch of TV cameras why their buddy screwed up on a play. Like that's just hockey players won't do that. Yeah. So I think the ability to just talk to them 
gives you a little better understanding of what's happening on the ice. It allows you to be more critical um, because you're sure of what you're writing. You're not wondering if it was this guy's fault or not. Um, and then it also allows you to build the relationships with them so that when you write something critical, they understand that you're just doing your job. You're not out to get them or whatever. Yeah. And obviously some players that's easier than others, but that's, that's to be expected. Uh, that's, that's part of the job. I'm sure I, I want to go a little bit to kind of the, the golden Knights themselves. Like what's maybe one thing that you'll always remember about this team. Like I uh, haven't covered them and, and seen them winning the cup. Like what, like what's just one thing that will maybe stick out of your mind other than maybe the Aiden Hill save that uh, you could put uh, your story back in uh, immediately. Yeah. I mean, just, you hear this every time a team wins and it's like, it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like do teams that win championships, are they all close in the locker room and are they all really good friends because they're winning or are they winning partially because they're close? And, and this, this golden Knights team was so close that first year, the first season when they went on that miraculous run like that, like you ask guys even now that are on different teams that have moved on and they'll say like, that was the, the closest locker room I've ever wow. played for it. There was something special about it. And then I think it kind of got chipped away over the last few years. And like, obviously they moved on from some really not just good players, but players that were popular in the room um alex tuck mark andre fleury some nate schmidt pierre edward belmar guys that were really big pieces of that room and it, and it kind of shook the locker room up a little bit i think and this year felt it was the first time in six years that it felt like that first year they were all just really close i don't know what it was i don't know if it was a little bit of Bruce Cassidy, his coaching job. I think he was phenomenal for this team. Um, I think whatever it was, this group, I also think that they kind of rallied around Jack Eichel and then he had a really bad rap coming into this team about how he he doesn't do the things to win games and he's he's bad in the locker room and all this stuff. And none of that ended up being true. And and I think they kind of rallied around that. And he was he was a really big part of, of why they were so tight in the locker room. But yeah, I, when I think back to this team, I think at least... Now, pretending I'm 10 years in the future, when I think back to this team, I'm going to remember how close they all were in the locker room, how how like much fun they all had every day. And like to me, Jonathan Marchessault is the ringleader for that. I mean, the guy is he is the court jester on the team. He's hilarious. <laughs> He's constantly talking trash to everyone in practice. He's hooping and hollering. He's, he's, he started this game where they're all betting each other who will score more goals in practice. So <laughs> it'll be the middle of this drill on a Wednesday practice where most times it's like, we don't want to be here. We're here because we have to be. And, and, and Michael Amadio will score a goal that means nothing in practice. And the entire ice like explodes in excitement. Wow like in celebration. And the reason is because he just took the lead over Marcia. So in this scoring game that they're playing and everyone wants Marcia. So to lose because he talks so much trash that they all <laughs> can't stand it when he wins. So it's just things like that, that liven up. It just felt like this group was having a lot of fun all year long. And I think you don't do that if you're not winning, like the winning is part of that. You're, you're never going to see a team that's in last place. That's having fun every day. So, like I said, kind of the chicken and the egg thing. But I, when I think back to this team, I'm going to remember, how how close they were, how much fun they were having, and and just how like Mark Stone said it best after the they won the cup when he was on the ice. He said, "I just got to win the Stanley Cup with thirty of my best friends," and it gen that that, that felt genuine, not just something that he was saying. And, and with that, like what what I, I don't even there's so many questions because this team was so fantastic in the playoffs, but. I know you wrote about Aiden Hill and I think you had a, and not just the the paddle save, but more about his, his new contract. And I think it's an interesting kind of maybe theory in, in hockey that people have been debating about in terms of how much do you pay goalies? 
and in your pieces about maybe they overpaid with uh, Aiden Hill in a two-year $4.9 million contract, but that it doesn't even matter. So maybe just tell us what you think about like, should goalies being paid nine, $10 million or, or is it more effective in a cap era to, to pay four or 5 million and, and maybe just talk a bit about that piece. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> there's not a position in sports, maybe in all of sports that is more um, polarized when you talk to the decision makers, the GMs, than goalies in in hockey because it's so hard to predict like you you give a sergey bobrovsky uh, this long deal worth 10 million dollars a year and for the first three years of that deal it looks like a total disaster what did we do here he's awful and then all of a sudden he's he's the best player on the team and he's the only reason they made it to the stanley cup final so it's it's a tough position to predict and the reason is because the stats uh, i play goalie just i'll put the the i know yeah goalie stats are so influenced by the team in front of them whereas i think player stats aren't really influenced that much yes some guys if you score if you play on a high scoring team you're gonna have more points but if you play well even if you're on a bad team you're gonna score a bunch of goals and your stats are gonna look fine whereas a goalie can play really well on a bad team and his stats are awful so i think we we evaluate goalies off their stats way too much and and not just we the media i'm teams executives i think we all as a group put too much stock into goalie stats because I think it's more of a team stat than it is the goalie stat. So because of that, we never know what to do with the contracts. And I think my opinion is that there are some goalies out there that are worth nine, 10 million a year, but only a few of them. Okay. And and if you've got an Andre Vasilevsky, I'll pay that guy, whatever he wants, (laughs) hand him a blank check, whatever he feels like he needs to make. That's what I'm paying him because he's the best in the world. Ilya Sorokin just signed a deal. He's worth every penny of that deal. He's probably going to be worth more than that deal pays him um, in the end. Igor Shosturkin, phenomenal goalie. Connor Hellebuck is the interesting one because he's like, I think he's not quite Vasilevsky, but he's an elite goalie who's been a top five goalie for years and he's still only 30 years old. Even he right now, it looks like is maybe having some hard time finding teams want to trade for him and give him a big contract. So I think if it were me, I either want an elite goalie and I'll pay him 10 million or give me two pretty good goalies, an Aiden Hill, uh, someone in the middle. I think 5 million is a lot for Aiden Hill. 4.9 million is a lot for Aiden Hill. I think I'd much rather be paying him 3 million. I think I'd rather have a goalie of that caliber and pay him 3 million and then try to build the best team around him. Because as we saw with the Golden Knights this year, if you have a good defense and you make things easy on the goalie, even not elite goalies can put up elite stats. I mean, the Golden Knights, they, they, Jonathan Quick was the worst goalie in the entire NHL, like bar none. He, like, out of 113 goalies that stepped on the ice, he was 113th. Like, he was yeah. awful. Yeah. And he comes in and he wins four games in a row behind this team because the defense is so good that anyone that's good enough to compete at this level is going to be able to play well behind him. So, I think there are two very different strategies. Is it easy to build a team good enough to where the goalie doesn't matter? No, it's not. It's very difficult. And like Vegas did it this year. How sustainable is it? We're going to see moving forward. How easy is it to do for other teams to try to mimic? Probably not very easy. You've got to have the right system. You've got to have right the right players. Their defense is so good in Vegas. So um, I think it's tough to do. But I think if it were me, if I can't get my hands on one of those elite goalies, because they're hard to find, right? There's only a few of them. If I can't get one of those guys, I'd much rather try to build the team and get me some pretty good goalies and a, and a bunch of them, two or three so that you can rotate them and you can play the hot hand and 
Aiden Hill wasn't the best goalie on the Golden Knights all year. At point at that certain points, Logan Thompson was the best goalie. At certain points, Loren Bressois was the best goalie. And then Aiden Hill was the best goalie at the most important time. If you've just like if you're just relying on Aiden Hill to be awesome all year, probably not gonna happen. But yeah. if when he has a bad month, Logan Thompson has a good month, you're gonna be fine. So you need more than one if you're gonna if you're gonna go with goalies of that caliber in that kind of tier. Um, you you can't just lean on one guy, Igor Shesterkin. He's going to be our guy this year. He's playing all the important games. He's going to win all the games we need him to win. That's that's a totally different strategy. Well, with that, because you, you alluded to how good this team defensively was, do you, how much of that was just an awesome decor? I think most people, especially after this run, would say uh, Vegas had the best just decor itself. But how much of that was the D themselves? How much of that was the forwards chipping in and, and Bruce Cassidy's system? Maybe just... Tell us how much do you think their amazing defense was like, who do we give uh, all the uh, kind of um, uh, just, just who do you think was the, the key for it? Yeah. I'm going to cop out and say all of it. Um, <laughs> that's the, that's the, the cop out answer, but I think it's true. I think this, so the golden Knights defense core is super talented and I think it's, it's, it's best asset is its depth. Um, Alex Petrangelo, phenomenal number one defenseman, but he's not one of the top five defensemen in the league. I mean, you've got like Kale McCarr and, and Victor Hedman and, and Adam Fox and Eric Carlson, but he's a very good number one. And then you've got Alec Martinez. They make a great pair, top pair. And then you've got Braden McNabb and Shea Theodore. They're a s- excellent second pair that would be a first pair on some teams. And then you've got Zach Whitecloud and Nick Hague, two young guys that really developed. And I think they, they're they good enough to be second pairs on some teams. Mm. I think they're without a doubt the best bottom pair in the NHL. And what that does is not only are they good, but they also play more than most bottom pairs, which takes some of the the, the load off of Petrangelo and Martinez. And they're, Petrangelo and Martinez are on the wrong side of 30. If you play them 28 minutes a night, they're going to be worn down by the time you get to the playoffs. And they weren't because Haig and White Cloud played so much and not just the amount of minutes, but they they play tough minutes. They like Cassidy wasn't afraid to throw them out there against top lines. So it takes a little bit of the, the weight off the shoulders of the top guys. And I think it kept them all fresh. And it's part of the reason they didn't have many injuries in the playoffs is because they were so deep. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to overwork guys. Um, but the forwards deserve a ton of credit. I mean, when you go down the line and you look at the Golden Knights forwards, there aren't many elite scorers on this team. They're very good 200 foot players. It's how they build their team. Um, I was just at the draft talking with Bob Lowe's, their, their director of player personnel. And he, I was like asking him like, how come every player you draft the first thing out of their mouth is when I ask every player that they draft, describe yourself as a player, 200 foot player, two way player. They all love that. That's the forward that the Golden Knights like. Mark Stone is as good as it gets defensively. Riley Smith, who they traded in the offseason, is an excellent defensive uh, winger. Riley, or sorry, William Carlson, as good as it gets. He was their lockdown defensive center, all playoffs against the toughest matchups. They've the list goes on and on. They've got so many defense. And then Jack Eichel took his off the puck game to another level in the playoffs yeah. and was just spectacular in his back check and his forecheck. So I think they help. And, but they've had that for a few years. I think what made them different this year was Bruce Cassidy's system just fit this group so well. Pete DeBoer is a great coach and runs a great system and it works everywhere he goes. As I mean, everywhere the guy goes, they're deep in the playoffs for a reason. He's a great coach. But I just think Bruce Cassidy's system fit this team a little better. Um, it's a it's more of a compact zone defense that kind of keeps everyone around the net and you just try to take 
inside of the slot away from teams and you kind of let them have the puck on the outside. Whereas with Pete DeBoer, they were kind of chasing the puck around a little more. And I think Vegas is built to play that compact zone because they're big, strong, and they have long sticks, all of them. So they're, they're big, long guys with a lot of range. And it just makes it really tough to complete passes through the middle of the ice, which is how you score goals in the NHL. So I think it allowed their big defensemen to kind of take ownership of the front of the net. They're not moving around the zone. They're staying in one spot and I'm protecting this territory. And they did a really good job of it. They didn't let teams in front of the net. And then it allows those defensive forwards to be a little closer to the net to, to make the impact that they can make. So I just think, like I said, I think it was a combination of they have great personnel, both at forward and defense. And then Bruce Cassidy's system just seemed to fit this group really well. And they learned it so quickly. I thought there would be a learning curve. I thought the first half of the year they would struggle defensively because it was such a drastic change, but they picked it up pretty much right away. Even Bruce Cassidy was like surprised at how fast this team picked it up. So um, it was, it was a perfect match. And and with that, obviously with the golden Knights, many people look to Kelly McCrimmon, McCrin- sorry. Um, and just how they built this team through the expansion draft, but also just how cutthroat they've been. You know, you mentioned Flurry, Pacioretty, like a lot of big guys they've traded out or or let go of. How how much influence do you think their approach to kind of team making will will kind of be passed around because the NHL is a copycat league? Like how how likely do you think other teams will be doing similar things and, and maybe getting rid of guys? Quickly? Yeah, it's. It's super interesting. And I, I don't know the answer to that. It's going to be fun to see what happens over the next couple of years. Like when you when you hear, I don't know how many times over the last three years, the Golden Knights did something and compared it to Tampa Bay. Like they um, like every move they would make. They Like when they when they signed Alex Petrangelo, they're like, we look at Tampa Bay and they've got Victor Hedman. You need that defenseman to win. They do something else. And it's like, well, Tampa Bay did this, this, this. Like they're clearly modeling what they're doing off of a dynasty almost. I mean, as, as much of a dynasty as you can have in, in the salary cap era. I'm curious if it will happen with the Golden Knights, if teams will copy that. And I don't know so much about the cutthroat trading, but to me, it's the it's the aggressive acquisitions. Um, you hear so many GMs say, well, in the salary cap era, it's so hard to make big trades. You can't make the cap work. You can't make the salaries fit. It's it's too hard to make big trades. You have to give up too much. Well, the Golden Knights were not afraid, and they showed that it's not as hard as people make it seem. I mean, they trade for Mark Stone. That's a blockbuster deal, bringing in a captain. They gave up the picks. They made it work. They sign Alex Petrangelo. He's the biggest fish in free agency. They give him that seven-year deal, mega contract. They made it work. They they had to get rid of their number one defenseman at the time, which was Nate Schmidt. That clearly was an upgrade. It worked out. Jack Eichel, how many times have teams said, we can't trade for a number one center? There's You, you, you have to draft one. Well, they proved you, you have to. It has to be the right scenario. I mean, the guy needed a neck surgery that the team wouldn't let him have. And that forced him onto the trade block. But still when those situations you, you say like, Oh, that player never becomes available. But I feel like we say that every year about somebody, this guy, guys like this don't become available. I'm, I'm curious if GMs will be more willing to make those aggressive moves. And if you need a number one center and one comes available, who cares what it costs draft pick wise, what it costs salary wise, we'll, we'll find a way to make it fit we need this player to win a championship. And the Golden Knights did that with several different players and it ended up working out. I think if if the Golden Knights had had missed this championship and their window closed and they never won one, I think teams would have said, see, that's why you can't, you can't yeah. do that because it puts you in cap trouble. Look at them. They're always having to trade players away because they're in cap trouble. 
but you win a championship and it totally changes everyone's view on it. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, maybe that's the way to do things. Um, it's going to be interesting. I have no idea if teams will copy it, but it's going to be fat. I'll tell you this. If everyone starts copying what the Golden Knights have done for the last few years, the NHL is going to be way more fun to cover yeah. because, because it suddenly becomes the NBA where you're just trading oh. superstar players all over the place. I would be very happy if teams decided to copy the Golden Knights and trade and, and sign as many players as they can. It'd make the league more fun. Just with that, is there any chance they're in on Carlson? Because I just think that's like the biggest NBA kind of blockbuster, super team kind of acquisition. I would say probably not. Um, their defense is, was really good this year, and I just don't. His contract is massive. They would have to trade like half their defense core just to to make it fit. So I'm going to say no on him. I was I was kind of thinking about Debrinket though. Debr- like yeah, no, the- when. Yeah, yeah when no, no, like Riley Smith. Yeah, when they traded Riley Smith, yeah, um, exactly I was talking right. to our senator's writer, uh, Ian Mendez, at the draft. We were in Nashville when it happened, and and I, he was like, "Do you think Vegas could be in on on Debrinket? And I'm like, "Dude, it makes a lot of sense. Like, it, like it seems like the kind of move they would make." And then obviously they signed Barbashev a few hours later, so that kind of put that to bed. But like I said, I'm always any any time they find a way to make some cap space, my ears perk up. I'm like, okay, who's the biggest name on the block? Because that's who they're probably going for. No, no, no. Like I'm, I'm actually here in Ottawa and, and a friend of the show is Ian Mendez. But yeah, no, we I remember my on Twitter blowing up when uh, that trade for Riley Smith, because everyone thought was like, who what does Vegas have? Can they trade Thompson to the Sands? All that kind of stuff. We need a goalie. This was before Corpusalo, of course. And yeah, yeah no. But um, with that, I want to ask you a little bit about obviously uh, with Vegas as a market and then how, how would you describe the market now? And do you think the the Stanley cup has made Vegas kind of cross that threshold and become a, like a full blown hockey market. Yeah. I mean, it's the Vegas is really taken to hockey. Um, and, and maybe it's because it just happened and we haven't really, like, I haven't really seen the impacts. I don't think it's hmm. that different now that they want a Stanley cup. Okay. Because the, I mean, Vegas was already all in. I mean, this team has sold out every game in franchise history. They've never had a home game at T-Mobile Arena that wasn't sold out and above capacity because they have standing room seats. Um, they have like a, it's called Hyde Lounge. It's a nightclub up on the third level and it's just standing room. So that place always has a few hundred, a few thousand people. So they they have not had a game that wasn't over 100% capacity in six years. So um, and then, and then even just aside from that, like you drive around town, every car you see has a license plate, a Golden Knights license plate, or a Golden Knights sticker on it, or a flag sticking out of their window. Um, it's everywhere you go. And then I play hockey, and I've seen the growth of people playing the sport in Vegas, which is another like that's that's how you grow it, right? Kids playing hockey grow up to be season ticket holders. So you like when I when the, before the Golden Knights got to Vegas, there were only two rinks in town, um, three wow. total sheets of ice, one with two sheets, one with one. And and that was more than enough. Like they like the ice wasn't even full back then. Now they've built two new facilities, both with two sheets each. So they've gone from three to seven. And that's not even close to enough ice to, to I, my men's league wow. games start at midnight sometimes um, oh because God. there's just so much hockey going on that 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 like basically they don't shut the rink down until 1 30 in the morning and then there's at six in the morning there's already games going on the next day and that's that's seven days a week basically so they're already thinking about building another one there's st- they haven't started the construction but there's plans to build another rink um, and then there's another rink that has one rink that they're thinking about expanding to two so they we may have as many as 10 sheets in the next couple oh years okay. um, and and like i like talking to people that run these these rinks they're like 
we expect if we were to build two more sheets, we we expect it to be filled up the ice time instantly. Like the moment it opens, it'll be full. So um, the the amount of people playing hockey in Vegas has exploded. I think the number um, this is just off the top of my head, so don't quote me. But there were like 80 something kids under the age of eight playing hockey before the Golden Knights got in, in the entire state of Nevada. Oh 80 something kids under the age of eight. And <laughs> now that number is like. 1500 or something it's it's over a thousand it's like a crazy wow. amount of growth in just six years so um yeah it's the, the this city is a legitimate hockey town we'll see what happens when there's some lean years that's always yeah. the test right like it's easy to be a hockey town when your hockey team is the best team in the league and they're trading for all the best players and it's a lot of fun eventually they're gonna suck that's how pro sports work there will eventually be some time where they don't win games and they aren't in the playoffs. And that will be the true test. Can this city sustain the sellouts and, and the excitement about this team when they aren't winning uh, playoff games and when they aren't winning Stanley Cups? We'll see. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen. Eventually it will. And that'll be the true test. But so far to this point, every thing you can possibly look at, this city has has fallen in love with the sport of hockey, which is really cool to see. And there's a lot of talk of expansion again in the NHL and, and maybe Arizona moving. Um, what 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 do you think expansion teams or, or new relocation teams in, in the NHL, what can they can maybe learn from Vegas and, and their story and just being so successful? Maybe other than the fact that the expansion rules have changed, so they might not be as good, but even look at Seattle making the second round in their second year. So well, what, what do you think Vegas did so right to kind of make the team good on and off the ice? Yeah, on the ice, I mean, they're obviously all going to try to win. So I don't know how much you can learn from that. But I think that off the ice, the Golden Knights did a really good job of connecting with the community and being part of that. Like, I think it's also they had an advantage that other teams probably won't have. Um, the advantage they had was Vegas, the city of Las Vegas had never had a major pro sports team. And these people in this city wanted one so bad, even if it wasn't the sport that they followed, which for most of them, it was not hockey. They were going to be all in on whatever team they got. So the Golden Knights were the first team ever. So they just and then they're in the community. They're doing charity events. They're doing they're 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 holding charity softball games. They they're just everywhere in the community. And I think that the city really bonded with the team over that. Um if you're another team, if you're an expansion team to a city that already has pro sports, it's you're obvious that that same you you don't have yeah. that. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to work a lot harder to get a connection with the fans than the Golden Knights did. So I, I think that there are some things that maybe you can't copy. It's just just how it worked out here. Um, but I would say that building up that that connection with the with the fans and with the community was a huge part of why the Golden Knights are so popular here, um, aside from just the winning. And then going forward, obviously, this team uh, next year, they have the same, essentially, that I saw, I wrote, read your piece, the same decor, pretty similar forward group. Just what, what do you think of the team next year? And what are the chances they could maybe even repeat next year? Yeah, I mean, they're going to be really good again. I expect them to be one of the best teams in the league. Um, they only lost Riley Smith and now they've got Ivan Barbashev for the whole season. Remember he was only there since the deadline. So I don't know if he fills Riley Smith's spot, but you could argue that that was a good trade off for them getting a player that's five years younger. So this team should be really strong in terms of their chances to repeat. It's you got to get a lot of luck, right? And and I think most of that is health wise. I mean, this team was ravaged by injuries for two years Two last season. They missed the playoffs because everyone was hurt. And then this season at certain points in the regular season, it looked like they were heading for a similar outcome with Mark Stone out with another back surgery and a bunch of goalies hurt. And 
Then all of a sudden they get to the playoffs and nobody got hurt for three months. <laughs> and they had basically the exact same lineup. I mean, Laurent Brassois was the only player that got hurt in the playoffs. And then Aiden Hill comes in and he's even better. So they had no issues with injuries. And what are the odds of that happening again? Probably not great. So that they would need to stay healthy if they're going to make another run. If they can, I think this team can absolutely repeat. They just just destroyed the league through these playoffs. Like it was one of the most impressive. I wrote a story on, on how on just the numbers of how dominant they were. You don't see this in, in the Stanley cup playoffs very often where a team runs through the league, the way Vegas did. So if they were to stay healthy, they're absolutely in position to, to try to repeat. Um, this is hockey. So there's a lot of variance. A lot of things go right. A lot of things go wrong for teams that are kind of out of your control. And you just have to hope it all happens. And this year it did for Vegas. Um, will it happen again? We'll see. I think they're putting themselves in a position. That's all you can do, right? As as front office and as a team, all you can do is put yourself in position. We're one of the teams that if everything goes right for us, we're going to win the cup. And I think Vegas is right back there. And and I before I let you go, and thanks so much, Jesse, for taking the time and coming on. I, I always ask uh, our uh, NHL guests just about um, if they were NHL, if you were NHL commissioner, Jesse, for the day and you could change one rule what what rule would you change oh man that's a great question um i think changing offside would yeah, be fun that's that's, that's, that's a, lot that a lot of people, a lot of people say offside yeah so i i grew up um not having the money to play travel ice hockey and i played a lot of roller hockey because of it um and i've i've transitioned now to where i just play ice hockey but for a while there i was playing almost exclusively roller hockey and roller hockey has no offside and it's a lot of scoring and it's a lot of fun and it's just and now it's also four on four so that opens things up a little bit but the no offside rule creates a lot of offense and in a league that is kind of leaning that way it's getting away from the physical big huge checks and it's more towards the skill and every draft class we see comes in gets more and more skilled and more and more talented and we see scoring is going up i could see um, the potential for some really fun hockey if they were to change. I don't, but then there's part of me that's the traditionalist that's like, no, I like the way, like that, that yeah. totally changed the way the sport is. And I like the trying to play the territory game and, and keep the puck in the zone and all that. So I don't know. It's, it's tough, but I think just off the top of my head right here without thinking more of the offside is probably what I would go with. Would, would it make any sense? I'm just thinking of keep bringing back the two line pass, but there's no offside, but you still have the blue line. So it's like you can't just cheat and go like just, uh, you know, in front of the net and, and like do a Sean Avery or something like that. And while the other teams on the other right. side, maybe I'm just thinking of that off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, um, thanks so much, Jesse, for taking the time and, and doing this. I really appreciate it. I just want to ask you quickly, though, um, just because I always ask journalists just a little bit at the end about their career. And, and I want to ask you, what advice would you maybe give to, to young journalists coming up? in the industry and it's been very volatile there's been layoffs and everything so just what advice would you give to to journalists yeah this it's a tough industry um it is we i mean even at the athletic we've had layoffs recently that were really tough um to deal with and it seems like every week there's another publication laying people off it's a tough industry but i will say like my advice for people that are just getting into it or, or say you're in college and you're you're pursuing a journalism degree is to just write as much as you can for as many different publications as you can. I and and you don't have to wait. Like I think my one regret when I was in college is I felt like okay, well maybe once I'm like a junior or a senior, then I can start writing for the school paper and and yeah. reaching out to newspapers to to do freelance work. And then once I started doing it, I was like I should have done this 3 years ago, 2 years ago. 
Um, I could have done it two years ago and it, and I would have had even more experience than I have now because I think the classes are important and you, you should learn what your professors have to say. I'm not saying that's not important, but you'll learn way more stringing for a newspaper, doing some freelance work. And like the, the way what I did when I was in Vegas, when I was young and I had some great um, journalists here locally that kind of helped me figure this out. But if there's an event, a tournament happening in your in your city and there's a team that's coming and you think, especially nowadays, newspapers don't send reporters on the road as much. Call the newspaper of that team that's 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 team is coming to your city and say, hey, I am a junior in college. I um, I work for the school paper. Would you want a story on this team? And and maybe they'll give you 50 bucks. Maybe they'll give you 20 bucks, whatever it is. You get your byline in that newspaper. I was getting bylines in like the Orange County Register in California. All these like I never even went to California and I had a byline there and it does multiple things. One, it teaches you a lot about how this job actually works. Like you're actually doing the job so that when you go for a job interview, you know, I can do this job. I've done it. And two, it makes you a bunch of connections. That's like the most important way. Like that's, yeah. that's almost more important than how good you are at writing in this industry is who, you know, and, and what kind of connections you have to try to get a job. So the more you do that, the more people you talk to, the more people you work with when you graduate, the better chance you have of getting a job um, based on those connections. And like I said, it'll, it'll help you actually with confidence knowing you could do the job because you've done it. So that would be my um, advice is don't just go to school and then graduate and then try to be a journalist. Try to be a journalist as soon as you possibly can um, and in any way you can. Well, thanks so much, Jesse. And uh, I definitely know uh, listeners will will take that advice. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time and coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, you know, you guys go uh, in Vegas, go deep again in the playoffs. And maybe, you know, you see uh, William Carlson uh, with another speech and Bruce Cassidy uh, being right about back to back and all that fun stuff. So uh, as a Sens and Jets fan, I hope not, especially when you guys beat my Jets uh, in uh, in the uh, in the spring. But uh, thanks again, Jesse, for taking the time and doing this and uh, good luck uh, and have a great summer. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me.